This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to episode 446 of IAQ Radio. It is Friday, February 3rd, 2017. And this week, we're going to review the Indoor Air Quality Association's 20th Annual Meeting and the ASHRAE AHR Expo. Uh, my, I'll be doing some reporting along with our guest today, Don Weeks, past president of IAQA. And I've got a, an interview, too, we did with Kevin Kennedy while we were at the conference on a very interesting presentation he gave along with a couple of others we'll mention in a moment. But before we do that, let's stop and thank our more key sponsors. IAQ Radio marquee sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. That's legends-enviro.com. And... uh don't forget to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their services or products. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, And Joe. now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or, if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. I'm sorry to report there was no correct answer to last week's trivia question. The IQ Radio Radio trivia question for Friday, February 3rd, 2017 has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Now for today's IQ Radio trivia question. Name the two known carcinogens that pose long-term exposure risks in the indoor environment. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Let's get Don Weeks on the line here. Hello, Don. Do we have you? Good morning. How Welcome. Are you? Welcome back. Good. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fine. Uh, for those of you that I think just about everybody knows Don Weeks on IAQ Radio now. Don's a past president of IAQA. He's a certified industrial hygienist, certified safety professional in air environmental up in uh, Canada there. And uh, Don, I'm, I'm wondering what your overall thoughts were on the, you know, we wanted to talk a little bit about the IAQA 20th meeting. And uh, I wonder if you could give listeners your overall thoughts on how things went. Well, I, I think they went very well. It, it was, a, as you know, the 20th uh, IQA annual meeting, so we did have some uh, some real good um, uh, presentations and uh, some extra uh, social events. I think <laughs> that went very well. <clears throat> so I, I was very pleased with uh, with the overall uh, convention. It was well attended, and I 
I think uh, many people who were there uh, had, uh, you know, very uh, good things to say about the program. So I think it, uh, it, it went very well. We had some good programs. The other thing that I think was a big plus this year, Don, was um, both groups were in the same hotel. The the Ashray folks um, and and a lot of their meetings, as I understand it, I didn't get over to the Ashray side much, and maybe you can talk to people a little more about that, but they were both in Caesars, and that really helped, I think, with coordination of things between the two groups. Would you agree? I would agree, yeah. I, th- I see more integration each year between the two groups, and if, <clears throat> if, if somebody wanted to attend both um, – of the presentations um, on, you know, the, on both um, programs, they certainly had the opportunity to do that. Plus, there was always uh, many um, technical committees that ASHRAE has that I think they have, uh, they had somewhere in the neighborhood of 699 different uh, meetings that you could go to to attend on subcommittees and, and committees and, and various uh, other um, uh, projects that they're working on. So, Having them in the same uh, building is it was certainly a plus, and I think there's uh, it was shown by just a very small example. Um, two of the uh, the current president and the future of uh, the next president of Ashray were able to find a little time in their schedule to come over for uh, some of our sessions and also to attend our welcome party on Monday night. So it it was it was good to have them there, and it was it was uh, certainly a good opportunity to mingle uh, between the two groups. You know, I saw Tim Wentz, who's the, I believe the current president. Who's the Who's the next president of Ashray? Uh, Bjorn A. Olson. Uh, he's uh, He's an indoor air quality uh, uh, researcher out of the uh, Denmark uh, Technical University, uh, oh. and he's uh, going to be president starting in uh, Long Beach uh, meeting in uh, at the end of June. Oh wow, that's that's so, great. Uh, that's a good thing because he's really involved with indoor air quality for many, many years. He's past president of uh, of uh, an indoor air um, me- uh, meeting in uh, in uh, Denmark uh, back in 2009. So he's very much involved with indoor air quality. That's a very uh, reassuring thing to hear, Don, because I know some some IAQA members, you know, they're a little concerned about the the ASHRAE. You know, they're a behemoth. They're huge. They've got, uh, I mean, how many, I don't know off the top of my head, I don't know if you do, but at the conference there had to be, what, 2,000 booths at the um, AHR Expo? Well, there was actually uh, closer to 6,000 uh, booths. Wow. Um, and 500,000 uh, square feet of space. Now, we did have, uh, and, and, and we work very closely with the folks at AHR Expo. It is a private organization. Um, they set aside a nice area for the IQA pavilion this year with uh, different carpeting and signage. And um, I had occasion to talk to some of the, our exhibitors from there. There were 16 of them. And uh, they were well pleased with the traffic there. So, yes, it's a huge uh, behemoth uh, uh, expo. But, it, you know, the advantage you have with about 60,000 people going through it is that there's bound to be somebody there who's interested in your product or your services. You know, I'll so I think it worked that. well for our people in that regard. I I spoke to I went over I only made it to the IAQ portion of the, of the expo because there was just so many things going on. But the vendors I talked to were happy that uh, they were there and that they they felt that they had a really good. 
turnout and that um, they were they were very pleased with uh, being part of the show. I know um, some vendors have worried about that, but I think maybe uh, they might want to rethink it. I think so. We did another thing with the vendors this year. Uh, for those who were interested, they were able to set up at our welcome party and participate in a uh, uh, in that party by having a small booth and and having people come up and, and get their cards filled out so that they could uh, potentially win a, a, a prize if you had a full card. So our, our vendors are very important to uh, IEQA, and so we did an extra effort to make sure that they, uh, they were visible to all our members. Yeah, that worked out real well. And by the way, that was a nice uh, opening rec- and, and a nice touch by uh, President Lapoterre, John Lapoterre, and his uh, wife Lydia. They greeted everybody coming in. It was open to all the people that attended. And uh, I thought that went really well. Um, let's let's move on a little, Don, and talk talk about some of the presentations and and a little bit about what we learned. Why don't we? Uh, why don't you go first, and then I'll I'll chime in and uh, give listeners a little idea of some of the things I picked up. Very good. Uh, I think one of the ones I wanted to highlight um, was one of the ones that was on Wednesday, um, and you and I both attended it. So you know, chime in at any time. And that is the the one that was uh, regarding the uh, the quadruple AI document that uh, that uh, was talked about uh, by by four uh, different uh, um, presenters. It was an excellent uh, presentation on the document, which they had been working on for a number of years, uh, regarding um, basically home inspections, uh, home assessments by practitioners, and how that fits in with the clinician. Uh, uh, evaluation of people's health, and I, I thought that went very well. Um, it was well explained by uh, by uh, Dr. Miller, Carl Grimes, uh, Kevin Kennedy, and uh, and Elliot Horner, who all were participants in the uh, in the uh, process. Uh, so um, they they really talked a, a lot about how this was going to be something that is a document for doctors, in effect, but it really was more on the um, you know, they talked about how the tr- uh, practitioners can interact with the clinicians who are, who are looking at, at, at uh, problems of, of, of their patients and how that they would like to have the home assessments done in a specific way in a certain format. And so I thought it was very useful for the practitioners who are in the audience to basically see what it was the doctors were looking for. And um, I think, um, you know, this is going to be a, a very important document down the road as, as uh, hopefully the doctors in our, who are doing this type of work or doing this, this type of assessment will start to rely more on the, uh, the, asset, the residential assessments being done by practitioners to give them a good idea of what the environmental conditions are for the folks who are, who are coming in with the, uh, the, the various types of, uh, of illnesses and, um, and, uh, um, and they can then coordinate the, the information that's provided to them by the practitioners with the, uh, their, the type of medical uh, examinations that they're doing and the types of tests that they'll actually ask for with regards to the patients. You know, I got to um, speak to Kevin Kennedy after his presentation, and I actually have, at the end of this show, I've got about a 15- or 20-minute interview I did with Kevin on that presentation on the document that Don is referring to. Um, we did a show on that as well, and I also had J. David Miller, Dr. Miller on, and he did kind of a history of indoor air quality. And um, on the show he did with us, he, he looked at dust mite 
and then compared how the dust mite um, issue progressed over time and how when it first became, you know, uh, people became knowledgeable about it, they really kind of, you know, didn't think maybe it was that big of a deal. And then over time, it became recognized and and you know all mds now understand that dust mite allergen and allergic allergies to dust mites are a real thing he kind of compared the mold issue to that so i'd i'd refer listeners back to the show we did with uh, j david miller probably about three or four months ago now and then we did a little show with kevin as well on that document it was it started out to be a practice parameter but um that kind of ran into a little Oh, a little, little, little rough, uh, rough time along the way. So what they did is they published all the articles in Jackie, the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and so that presentation was all about some of the information that was in um, in those articles. One being how they're reclassifying some of the fungi, and you know, I'll, I talked to Kevin. I'll let you listen to the interview later about how that might change how an MD would treat things. But I think Don, you hit on the key. We need our listeners to get that document that the doctors are looking at and make sure that when they do an investigation that they are doing it the way the doctors want to see it done and they're reporting it in the way they want to see it done. And they also had um, made recommendations for who should be doing these types of investigations, which I think a lot of our listeners will be happy to see you know, the types of uh, certifications and education they recommend for that. So uh, I agree. That was a great, great, rep, uh, a great presentation. And I'll get more on that a little bit later. I, I also wanted to mention another session that um, actually this was the um, plenary session, uh, Building Science Pressure Diagnostics by, by Steve Caulfield. Uh, Steve's with the Turner Group up in Maine. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a lot of stuff that I've, you know, I, I'm very familiar with, but I don't know how familiar some of the uh, attendees were with his presentation on building science and how pressure diagnostics were so important. He talked a lot about using thermal imaging and smoke and um, went into a little bit on, on tracer gas type uh, analysis of buildings. Don, did you, did you catch that one at all? Uh, no, unfortunately, Monday I, I had a, another meeting, but I, I did hear that it went very well and I got good uh, good um, feedback on that one. So, and I, I always like listening to Stephen anyway. He's uh, he's a really good speaker, so I'm, I'm glad that he his 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 uh, session went very well. The other preliminary one that you and I I think both attended was the one on on Tuesday, which was uh, uh, Powell Wawaki, um in regards to CO2 as a pollutant or merely an index of indoor air quality. And he had some really good and, and new research that uh, that he had done in his uh, lab in Denmark talking about the uh, uh, whether or not CO2 has an effect on, um, on cognitive performance and whether or not CO2 is, is more than just an indicator of indoor air quality, but it's more of a of actual potential um, pollutant that people need to be aware of. And... The interesting thing about his his uh, his laboratory experimentation was that, to some extent, he was trying to duplicate what was being done out at the University of California in Berkeley, um, and he found different results than what they did. So that is the way the course of research sometimes goes. It's not a straight line in many cases. There's there's a lot of turns and twists and turns along the way, and um, his data kind of says that. 
well, it does say basically that there that it it does have an effect on highly demanding uh, cognitive tasks, but it doesn't necessarily at a relatively low level of CO2 that we see somewhat in many of of of, of the environments we we work in. So it is interesting to see the differences in the research that you see from one um, university and one um, group of, of researchers to another. And that's the evolving of, of that over a period of time, I think, will, will certainly have an effect on the, and particularly on the IQ practitioners going forward when they start doing CO2 measurements. You know, Don, I, I have to say that was probably what I thought was one of the most important presentations during the whole event. And um, I, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment about that because the impression I got was that um, – most of the early research indicated you really had to have very high levels of CO2 before you started to see health effects or even performance types effects. So, you know, a lot of the work was done as, you know, because people were in submarines or these enclosed places where CO2 builds up, and obviously we don't want people operating submarines with nuclear um, warheads on them, you know, to be uh, performing at less than their peak. And then, you know, all the early research seemed to indicate that, you know, you, again, you had to get to these really high levels that you rarely, if ever, would see in an indoor environment before you started to see these performance or, or health effects. And then the study came out, I guess, a couple of years ago from Harvard that seemed to show that performance was affected at lower levels than previously thought. In fact, pretty low levels that, that you would commonly find in indoor environments. But then um, the group over in Denmark tried to duplicate that with some further research. And, and as you were saying, they really didn't get the same results. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, it seemed to me that the results they did get showed that when they just looked at pure CO2, as opposed to CO2 along with the bioeffluent um, that people produce, that there were less um, performance issues when it was pure CO2 than when there was both together, which is what we would find more often in indoor environments. Was I hearing that right? That is absolutely right. Yeah, no, that's that's a very important point, and you're right. I mean, uh, what uh, Powell had said was that um, he was seeing uh, certainly – uh, in terms of comfort and also odor perception, he was seeing a lot more um, of uh, people com uh, having complaints or having effects when uh, there was the CO2 and bioethylene uh, mixture that, that uh, they were being exposed to. And that makes sense if you think of it logically. Um, but it, it is something that, that may be, it's, sim it's, it's sort of like the moisture and mold issue, you know, dampness and mold issue. Uh, we we know that they go together, uh, and, and that's what, you know, when we see the effects. But it may not necessarily just be mold or it may not just necessarily be moisture. Well, it's the same here. It may not necessarily just be CO2, and it may not necessarily just be bioaffluence. But when you combine them together, that's when you have an effect. That's when you have people actually, uh, 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 you know, are discomforted by the fact that the, the environment is not uh, suitable for their for their task, for what they're doing in that space. And so... I think Powell made that point very clear that that, that you know that you know that's maybe the future in terms of research and also obviously in terms of practice uh, is that you're looking for not only the CO2 but also looking to see whether or not there's any exposure to bioaffluence. Cliff, let me make sure I get you a chance to jump in here if you had anything. No, no, what I had you already answered. I wondered how they could get the document and 
we're going to, in the Jackie document, and uh, you texted me back that we're going to include a link in the blog. So okay. That was my only question. Fantastic. All right, um, Don, let's let's move on. I don't know if you saw the um, presentation that uh, Cliff Cooper did, actually. Cliff, who was a guest recently on the show, I was really looking forward to seeing him. There were a, a few technical difficulties with it, but he, he did a um, IAQ investigation methods presentation. Were you able to catch that one? Uh, no, but I'd be glad to, you know, I know Cliff well, and uh, I'd be glad to hear what you have to say about it. Maybe we, I can respond once you've given a, some ideas on it. I thought it was it was fascinating. Um, you know, in spite of the technical issues, he was able to give people, an, and I think the big thing that I picked up out of it was um, we shouldn't be calling what people say complaints because that kind of prejudices the um, the investigation and or the the report when, when we talk about complaints he was he was saying that maybe we want to just note that they're they're expressing dissatisfaction because you know how it is if people call a complainer you know like I was a complainer when I was on the IAQA board I, I always hated that but uh, <laughs> you know um, I, I maybe I was just expressing dissatisfaction that was a key point that I got from him <laughs> That may have been Joe. I, that, that may have been what we should have said. You were you were you were you were dissatisfied or discomforted by what was going on. Yeah, I, I, but that was something I I made a note on, and I was like, you know, I want to make sure. I want to look at my reports and make sure that when I'm, I'm reporting on someone, that you know, I don't use terminology that kind of uh, uh, prejudices the the report to make it look like the person in the building is a complainer. No, they were expressing some dissatisfaction. And then he also, um, he, and I, don't, I want to pronounce this, tabula rasa, uh, that we need to come in with a blank slate, no preconceived conceptions, attitudes, values, or expectations. I thought that was an interesting point and good way of putting that. And then he also discussed uh, that we should be looking at identifying the risk, the hazard, and then putting together a program for risk management. And he used the example of a, he had a photograph of a, a fire hose that was going across some railroad tracks. And apparently the, you know, the fire department had to hook up on the other side of the tracks. They were fighting a fire and there's a fire hose going across the tracks. So he talked about, okay, you know, what's the risk, what's the hazard and what's the risk management in this case. And, uh, it, you know, I, I, the risk being, I guess, that um, the, the train would run over the, the hose and then, um, you know, the fire department wouldn't have the water, which would then cause the fire to burn out of control. Um, and I, I don't remember exactly how, but then there was a, they had the hose covered with a big red kind of, uh, it looked like it would be something that would take the train it wouldn't take it over the hose, but it would at least give the train conductor enough of an alert that, you know, maybe they could stop the train before they ran over the hose. I wonder if you could maybe comment on that whole thought about the, you know, the fact that we have a, a risk, uh, the hazard, and then risk management. Well, I think that's a, a really good uh, a, a way of putting it because uh, I think that in many cases uh, we tend to immediately jump to the, the conclusion that there, there must be a hazard that we, we need to, um, you know, to, to uh, mitigate in some way uh, without really knowing all the facts. And, and, and so 
the approach most people are taking nowadays is is is, uh, is investigate and, and inspect first and and thoroughly, and then after that, if you have something that you need to confirm what your investigation has given you, you then take sampling, but you don't reach for the sampler first, and 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 so I think risk management really is that. It's basically talking about what is it that. Um, that you were able to observe, what is it that you were able to talk to the individual, the dissatisfied individual about, and what, what is it that, uh, that may be um, mitigating circumstances that aren't necessarily related to um, uh, you know, something you can measure, such as, as we, many of us do, um, mold and other types of, of uh, pollutants. So the one thing I would add to that is that I think once you've done the risk management uh, side of it, when you've figured out exactly how to to manage the risk, how to basically put it in, in perspective for the building and for the for the workspace, you have to do a, an effective risk communication. You have to talk to the individuals that are are the dissatisfied individuals and say, you know, this is what I've done. This is how I've approached it. And this is what the conclusions were. We're welcome your feedback and 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 give them a part to play in the overall solving of the of the of the problem. And I think that risk communication is really the last piece that I would add to the to what uh, uh, it sounds like Cliff uh, was able to present. You know, I think that's a great point, Don, and it's one that um, I, I need to be more cognizant of because you know, when when teaching courses for indoor air quality, sometimes that's something that um, you know maybe we gloss over a little too quickly. That is a very important part of of things. The risk communication i know that's something that um the guy we're going to hear soon kevin kennedy and and the healthy homes program is is very um cognizant of they really focus on that portion of uh doing this type of work so i I appreciate you bringing that in hey we're going to come right back with dawn weeks and um we're not at to halftime yet but we do have an important uh announcement we want to make it's the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum coming to the Doubletree Hotel, Tampa Airport in sunny Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. Join industry leaders and educators as they share their knowledge and supporting science with you. See the latest equipment and solutions from exhibitors. Network with sponsors and industry insiders. It's two full days of in-depth coverage of water damage, assessment, protocols, mold remediation, solutions, and legal issues. Don't miss this important two-day industry forum, beginning this February 21st with a welcome reception and wrapping up with a live IAQ radio broadcast Friday the 24th, featuring Radio Joe and the Z-Man and their guest John Lapiterre, Richard Alexis, and industry watchdog Pete Consigli. Register now at IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com or call 954-562-6093 for more information. And for those of you in Florida, I don't know that he mentions it in there, but you can get all the continuing education credits you need for your mold assessor or mold remediation license in Florida by attending that event. And we hope to see you there. All right, let's get back, Don. Um, Don Weeks, I've got you back on the line. I'm wondering, is there another presentation or observation you'd like to tell listeners about from the IAQA 20th Annual Meeting? Yes, uh, you had mentioned early on that... uh you know, we had uh, we were co-located with Ashray in the same building, and um, that really um, highlights one of the presentations I thought was really important, which was the one by Claire Ramsbeck, who's with Ashray. She's the uh, standards um, 
a manager for ASHRAE, half ways that IQA members can get involved in ASHRAE committees and other opportunities. One of the things that um, it, there's over 100 technical committees with 100 standard, over also 100 standards writing committees, and, and including indoor air quality, thermal comfort, uh, a variety of different uh, combustion problems, infectious diseases, all things that, that indoor air quality um, association members should, should be involved with. The interesting thing about ASHRAE is that you don't have to be a member of ASHRAE in order to, be, uh, to participate in these committees. Uh, you, can, you just fill out a, a profile on the ASHRAE website, and uh, you can be a corresponding member almost immediately on any one of these committees. In addition, you can be a guest at any one of these committees' uh, meetings as well. And the reason why this is important is that many of the um, uh, standards that come out from ASHRAE have a, a major effect on on uh, our industry. I mean, uh, the you know the in ventilation standards for in, uh, indoor air quality for uh, commercial buildings, uh, 62.1 and 62.2, which is for residential buildings, have a profound effect because these get adopted as building codes. Uh, in many places throughout the United States and elsewhere. And um, if they're in the building code, people are going to, uh, you know, when they're building their buildings or renovating the buildings, they're, they're going to be required to adhere to these standards. And they have a major effect on indoor air quality, you know, and they have for many, many years. So I'd, I'd like to emphasize to, to your listeners that, uh, that getting involved in ASHRAE committees, it's real easy to do. As I said, you just fill out a a profile on the website, and you can uh, you can be a corresponding member and then potentially a full member at some point to each one of these committees as they're going along. And uh, I think that's a that's an important uh, good uh, uh, you know good outcome of the of the combination of IQA with ASHRAE. It's kind of a, a prestigious thing too to be you know on one of those uh, committees with ASHRAE, the biggest you know. Uh, the, the big dogs in the standard writing out there that uh, affects indoor indoor environments. So I I'm, I'm think I, I second what you're saying there, Don. I think people should get involved. Um, before we go to halftime, I want to I would like to highlight one more presentation that I saw, and then Don, if you have one, we'd be happy to um, get one more highlight from you as well. In fact, maybe we can talk about one together. There was one. Uh, another plenary called You Keep Building Them and We'll Keep Fixing Them. Uh, Bert Lamel out of uh, Colorado. Um, I can't remember the name of the town, but it's about ten or 11,000 feet up in the air in Colorado. Uh, were you able to attend that one? Yeah, that Bart, Bart is a real good friend of mine. and He's from Crested, Crested Butte, uh, Colorado, which you're right, is about ten or 15,000 uh, feet high up in the, in the, in the uh, snow country. So uh, I, I thought... I, I really enjoyed his presentation. Uh, he's a, what, the, what is, as he calls himself, a forensic carpenter, uh, <laughs> which you know is a unique term to say the least. Um, but what I find, what I found, I mean, he, he had some really good um, slides about how buildings can be poorly built and and end up with major problems, uh, particularly mold problems, but also water leakage and other indoor air quality problems. The thing I thought was most interesting in his presentation, one that he and I have had some discussions about, is that. Um, you know the 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 marijuana grow up um, industry is becoming huge in 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 almost twenty states right now. It's it's legal either for medicinal or recreational use, and so entrepreneurs are getting involved in this, um, and they're building these huge warehouses uh, throughout uh, the the areas to grow marijuana uh, you know plants and. 
the ventilation for these facilities and the, and the types of problems that you can have with indoor air quality and also with chemical exposure and others, is, is, it can be quite, quite uh, uh, difficult to deal with. And at the moment, there isn't any standards. It's, it's, it's kind of a, an open area right now. Now, ASHRAE is considering the idea of potentially doing something with it, but quite frankly, that's going to take some time. So a lot of our practitioners, the folks that are dealing with um, these types of buildings, and we're dealing with it here in Canada as well. It's been legal here to, for, to grow marijuana for about three or four years. These problems are, are becoming immense, not only for the people working in these facilities, but also for the neighbors nearby who you know, have, have uh, issues with what is being uh, discharged for the ventilation system. Uh, so... It's a, it's a new opportunity for practitioners to get a new area of expertise and, and, and kind of build up their industry, build business by, by looking into these types of facilities. I think that's a, a great point, Don. I also, um, I, I'm, I had an observation from his presentation as well. First of all, I, you know, I've done a little carpentry in the past, and my, my son's a great, um, an excellent carpenter. And, but I thought the thing that was, the takeaway was how he found, approached, and badgered someone into being his mentor, and now he's a forensic carpenter doing plenary sessions at the Indoor Air Quality Association and, and at uh, Building Science Summer Camp. I mean, he's, he's an entertaining and, and very funny guy, uh, but he also presents some very important information and uh, a lot of it was about cold climate related issues but um, the other issue you bring up about the grow ops was very important as well but I think the the takeaway for me was how important it is for people who are either new in the industry or maybe struggling a little bit or or maybe making a little transition from doing one thing to another how important it is to attach yourself to a mentor and if you are a mentor, how important it is for you to help those people make that transition or make that change and, and become better at what they do. So I thought that was the takeaway message for me. We're going to be back in 90 seconds with uh, Don Weeks, and uh, we're going to wrap up our section on our overview of the IAQA 20th Annual Meeting. And then I've got a really great interview with Kevin Kennedy that we did on the presentation Don and I talked about a little earlier. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them. WolfSense.com. IAQ Marquee Sponsors are... John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Legends Environmental Insurance, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends.com. 
That's legends-enviro.com. All right, we're back with the second half of our discussion of the IAQA's 20th annual meeting and the ASHRAE AHR. I've got Don Weeks on the line. And, uh, Don, any, any other comments or uh, observations that you'd like to share with listeners? Uh, yes. Um, one of the things that I think is very exciting for uh, IAQA and the indoor air uh, professionals um, going forward is the growth among international members, uh, which has been phenomenal this past year. Uh, we opened uh, new chapters in India, in uh, Shanghai, in Singapore, and Australia, as well as British Columbia. Um, so, and each one of those groups has, has, has grown um, very rapidly. And I met with uh, the folks from India um, during the conference, and uh, they're, they're planning great things going forward. I mean, they already have a meeting uh, scheduled for uh, later this, uh, this um, spring uh, where they're expecting, you know, quite a, a, probably 100 to 150 people to attend. Um, and uh, they have a conference, uh, uh, you know, each year that's uh, similar to AHR Expo in, uh, in March, and they get like 30,000 people to attend to look at the various ventilation but their theme this year is indoor air quality, and they have had major problems with outdoor air quality that has affected the indoor air quality industry. And they're looking at standards, too. They're looking at putting together a standard for indoor air quality, specifically for India, and also for air uh, filtration uh, purifiers, uh, air purifiers. So they're, they're working closely with, with others uh, to, to make this, this happen, and I think it's great that we're seeing this type of growth in the indoor air quality field as uh, as time goes on. You know, I'd like to mention one more presentation. I, you know, Don, like you, um, I tend to get pulled into meetings and don't necessarily get to see all the presentations I would like. But I, I was able to stick my uh, self into a presentation by Patty Harmon. Um, I think a lot of our listeners would know Patty. She used to be with the uh, Restoration Industry Association, and now I believe she's with claims magazine her presentation was called five factors impacting insurers and contractors and the the takeaway from that one i got was on the the cyber the whole cyber security thing i didn't really expect that to be one of the five takeaways but uh, once she started talking about it i realized wow this is something that affects everyone um this whole idea of cyber security and um, one of the things she was talking about is this whole idea of ransom on your computer programs and on your computer records, where if you make the wrong move, they can lock down your computer and you can't get back into your records. They get a copy of all your records, but you can't even open back up your information until you pay them a ransom. And... Um, what she was saying was this is not just something that happens to big companies anymore, to hospitals and, and so on, and that um, it could happen to anyone. I'm thinking to myself, you know, I've got a, I've got a pretty um, lengthy list of records here from over the years. Now, we don't put, and this is one of the key points she made, you, you certainly don't want to put any Social Security numbers or credit card numbers into uh, your records unless at least the social, uh, the uh, credit card numbers, at least, they're encrypted, and that uh, encryption technology is becoming more and more important, and also very, very important to have a backup of all of your 
records on a regular basis in case you do get locked out and they want you to pay a ransom for it. The other thing she brought up was that um, many business owners today are purchasing insurance to protect them against these types of issues. But even when they have insurance, and she had the numbers to show this, that, uh, for instance, I think it was Best Buy or one of the Target, one of those groups that got hit with one of these um, cyber issues, they had $5 million worth of insurance, but it ended up costing them more like $35 million to fix the problem. So sometimes you have the insurance, but maybe not enough insurance. And Don, I'm wondering if you've been hearing anything like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, here in uh, in Ottawa, uh, one of the governmental agencies um, was uh, was subject to that type of hacking where they had, you know, relatively uh, entrepreneurial type of information about uh, research that they were doing. Um, and they, 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 whoever was doing the hacking, and I don't want to say I know exactly who was doing it, basically was, was forcing them to... Um, to no longer use their computer system uh, for a period of almost two years uh, in order to get everything that they had to have intact. And so what they've in implemented now is in any governmental agency, you cannot bring in a, like a USB and plug it into their computers. You have to have it completely, uh, as they call it, rinsed before they will actually use any USB that you bring in. And they do the same with anything they have in, 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 in you know, any kind of incoming email. So, it's a, it's a major problem. We've we've been hacked here uh, once. Uh, luckily, it was it was very quickly caught by our by our, by our bank. Uh, somebody was trying to, you know, take some money out of our, one of our accounts. So I, I think you're right. I read a book recently called Cyber Crimes, which talks about all the different. Uh, problems that, that businesses and governments obviously have with this problem and it's, it's a huge industry that has been developing for many many years and I, I agree with what Patty was saying it's uh, it's going to be an ongoing problem until uh, well it'll be an ongoing problem probably forever as far as I can tell unless we we figure out a way to be able to get people to be a little bit more careful careful with their security and you know it, it's the type of thing that can put you out of business it's it's that you know that much of a problem it's it's really tough and then so i'm I'm on the plane home from iaqa i'm reading the usa today and there's an article in there about people now calling and they call you and in, in fact i had one of these calls earlier that day it was so ironic i couldn't believe it so they call you and they immediately ask you a question designed to get you to say one word and that word is yes. So they ask you, can you hear me? Or can, can you understand me? Can you, can you hear me well? And if you say yes, they record that. And then they will then send you an invoice for some service or product or whatever, the, you know, whatever it may be. And you say, well, I never ordered that. But they have a recording of you saying yes, and then they splice that yes on the end of some sales pitch. And uh, some people fall for that and, and end up paying for the product or at least going through the hassle of trying to fight the, uh, fight the invoice. And, and in some cases, if they've got your credit card number, then they can not only, you know, 
send you an invoice, they can actually take the money from your credit card, and then you've got to go fight that. It, it just It's amazing what's going on today, and I will never say yes on the phone again when someone calls me unsolicited. In fact, if I don't know the number anymore, th that one just convinced me I'm not picking up. And what they do to you is they call you, and they, they do it, from a uh, somehow they put an area code that's the same as your area code so you think well that might be a friend or family i just don't have them programmed into my phone it's just unbelievable what these thieves are up to these days and uh i wanted to let people know about that particular scam Don, before I go to the interview with uh, Kevin Kennedy that we uh that i recorded at the conference or do you have any final thoughts for our listeners well uh you I do, in regards to next year, uh, IQA conference, uh, we'll be in Chicago uh, January 22nd through 24th, 2018, um, and we're looking at different types of sessions, although you're, what you just brought up in terms of uh, cyber uh, crimes and things like that maybe may change my ideas in terms of some of this. We may actually have a, a session or maybe even a track on that. Uh, there are 44 different sessions. There will be four tracks like it was last year, uh, well, this, just this past week. Uh, looking at potentially uh, debates, uh, we, we'd be interested in anybody proposing a debate. We may actually go to a, an Ignite session, which is a, a rapid uh, round type session. We have five minutes and 20 slides. Uh, we may do something like that. And we're going to try to um, put it in sync with some of the ASHRAE uh, programs. I'm going to meet with the, uh, their program people and, and try to figure out exactly what's the best way to handle it. We're also looking for AHR Expo sessions. We had two this year, one by Ian Cole and, and one by... Uh, my, my wife, Lan Chi, which were very well received. We had over 100 people who were not attending our conference who actually attended the AHR Expo uh, sessions as well. So those are the types of things we're looking forward to doing. For I'm going to be the co-chair of the uh, convention committee with Alice Villia next year. So if you have any ideas, certainly get in touch with me, and we'll be glad to, uh, to work them into the, the, the program. Well, thank you, Don, and thanks for joining us, and, and thanks for your volunteer efforts. That's a big... Uh big responsibility and uh, a big job you're taking on in, in co-chairing the uh, conference for next year. And I do have some ideas. I will definitely be in touch. And listeners, please uh, either get in touch with me or Don and, um, you know, participate. Uh, you know, I've always told people, if you go to a training or you go to a convention and you come home with one good idea, and I came home with a lot more than one this year, you probably got your money's worth. So, uh, you know, I, w I would really encourage people to get out. And that, that doesn't even include the networking that, that occurs at these events. So, Dawn, thanks again for joining us. Much appreciated. You're welcome. All right. Now, one other thing, Cliff, I want to let you know and want to let listeners know. I don't know if you got a right answer on the trivia yet or not, but, uh, folks, you definitely want to uh, get that trivia question right. I just got authorization from IAQA to go ahead and uh, send out as a prize for this week's trivia question winner the USB with the presentations from this year's annual meeting that is a very valuable prize it costs uh, people you know 700 bucks to to go to the conference so um, I would definitely jump on that trivia question Cliff did we get a right answer yet I have half of a right answer. Someone that got one did not get the other. He's working on it, and uh, well, 
Hopefully you'll get it. Hey, by the way, Doug Conan, nice to see you at the conference. And a lot of other listeners um, said hello, and I I always appreciate that and uh, always love putting um, names and faces together and then uh, getting to see people that listen to the show regularly. Uh, Really appreciate the, the nice comments that people make. Okay, so what we're going to do from here is I've got a great interview I did with Kevin Kennedy. This is about 15 minutes. We talked a little more about the first presentation that Don mentioned. And uh, while we're doing that, I'm also going to see if I can't find and put the link up for that particular document we talked about. So, John, let's go over to that presentation. I'm here with Kevin Kennedy at the IAQA 20th annual meeting, and uh, he had a presentation this morning with Carl Grimes and Dr. J. David Miller, and uh, was there a third? And Elliot Horner, Dr. Horner, and I'm uh, hoping that Kevin can give us a little summary of what they were talking about. Sure. So, uh, if you've been listening to Joe's show, then you you may have heard. me on at one point mentioning the practice parameters, the clinical practice guidelines for environmental assessment that uh, I was fortunate enough to be a part of, as well as the other panelists that Joe mentioned. All of us were sort of the uh, environment and building science side with of uh, these practice parameters, and then there were a group of physicians and public health uh, researchers and others who sort of represented the health side of these parameters. We'd been working on these parameters for Oh, six or seven years, and then uh, we produced four parameters. Uh, Originally, these are systematic reviews of all of the literature associated with a a given allergen. So this was the Environmental Allergens uh, Work Group. And uh, the first parameter was on furry animals. The second one was on rodents. The third one was on cockroaches. And the fourth one was on dust mites. Um, And these are all available on the website of the AAAI. They call it open access, which means you don't have to pay for them. And uh, I think you can do a search for practice parameter. You could pick the name practice parameter, roaches uh, or cockroach, and then uh, it should pop up in an internet search at, like you said, the AAAA website, or they call it the Quad AI. Quad AI. Um, And then um, we were working on uh, and spent a couple of years working uh, through all the literature and a review on a mold parameter, but that ran into a little bit of controversy uh, about, um, I think, uh, just the general feeling across the medical com- community about how much uh, we know about all of the different aspects of the science. So, so as an alternative, they uh, al- allowed us to publish a series of articles, uh, again, reviews of the science uh, in six articles um, in, uh, last May, and I I don't know for sure if those are open source, if they're freely available, but I can certainly check and let you know. And if they are, we'll put a link up on yeah, the website. You bet. Um, but two of those uh, documents uh, we discussed here today, uh, the other four are more health-specific and, and designed specifically for the clinician. So one was on the latest knowledge about um, uh, in the immunity, the immune system, and specifically how, uh, how it works in inflammation uh, associated with uh, microbial agents, which that was important, uh, a new review of the science to say, 
there are a host of ways that exposure to uh, microbial products, uh, not, not just spores, but to all of the components and potential chemical agents, uh, just the, the menu of things, there, there, there are specific biological, biochemical mechanisms that lead to uh, an inflammatory response. And that may or may not be an allergic reaction. It's, it, it could be a couple of, of, of mechanisms there, exactly. Allergic being sensitization and an immune response, but then there are a couple of other ways that the immune system can react. I'm not a doctor, but this was a good document for doctors and what the latest science says. Is that something that um, is fairly new to medical doctors? I mean, they know about inflammation, but inflammation coming from exposure to biological components? Well, what's new is is the, you know, with all the talk in the last five years of biomes, microbiomes, genetics, epigenetics, genomics, all of that is alluding to the fact that molecular science has uh, advanced to a point where through a series of experiments and research we can really dig deep into specific biochemical mechanisms that that represent the allergic pathway, the Im, uh, immune response, and they, they have these incredibly detailed um, uh, networks or algorithms of all the individual reactions and what kind of proteins and chemicals and things are involved in all of these reactions. So the point is this document um, was a, the latest of that science about what we know about the molecular uh, biology of was all that. Was that part of what was controversial about this document or that? No. Uh, I'm, or this parameter, I yeah. should say. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I, I think there was a, cons you know, a, I don't know, a concern whether the the literature is robust enough by one sector of the health community or medical community, and then um, there's a significant other sector of the community that believes that the the science is pretty robust and has been for a while. So because there's enough potential debate, it was uh, sufficient for the Joint Task Force Board to just uh, really just hold off on... Put the brakes on that. ...on the, the development of a parameter. And let's get this information in publication and get that out. Oh. But um, let's revisit the concept of a parameter for this, a clinical practice guideline for this, at some future date. So let's get it out in Jackie. Let the medical community look at it, yeah. review it massage it if need be and then maybe it'll be a parameter and new science day. coming out too so okay. will help so uh, that was one article this uh, this one on uh, uh, the immune system and immune effects then there's a was another one that was more broadly the health effects of looking at what some of the epidemiologic research tells us uh, you know, public health research and other population health uh, research uh, but the, and then there was an, another one, bec again, because of new genetics uh, uh, knowledge, uh, the whole taxonomy of molds has changed. I saw so, that. Yeah, so which molds are related to each other. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, uh, based on our uh, um, uh, sequencing technology, that uh, we there's a, some new understanding about how certain... Um, species or genera of molds are 
associated with each other. So it sort of rearranged some of that taxonomy here mm-hmm. recently. So there how were experts that, involved in that. How analysis. does that affect, though, the, the medical community? I mean, is that something they're interested in? Be, for, well, it for is because, uh, and this is from my point of view, okay. um, what was suggested was the taxonomy tells you a little bit about the general biochemical function of these organisms, that there's some similarities in, in how they interact with the environment, how they grow and replicate, um, uh, what kind of um, VOCs they produce or what kind of proteins they might have associated okay. with them, which those, the proteins, some of them are antigenic, the things that people are allergic to, which means I, uh, if I have an allergy to a particular protein produced by this mold, the taxonomy might do a better job of connecting me my allergy. I might have been allergic to, say, a cladosporium mold, and then some of this new taxonomy research suggests I might be allergic to another mold because it turned out it's... Uh, more biologically similar to uh, this the original, mold. original mold. Yeah, okay. because we now understand the genetic relationship between them better, and we weren't basing it on genetics before. It was based more on morphology and uh, you know mycological studies and microscopy and those kind of things, culturing. And my understanding is from uh, Dr. Eva King is that the understanding of the allergenicity, if that's the right word, of molds has always been pretty complicated, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out, is there a specific type of mold that people are allergic to? What within the mold they're allergic to? Is that accurate to say? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Well, it's true with uh, the other allergens. It isn't just one single protein. Uh It's it's, uh, multiple possible proteins that different people might actually have an immune response to or, or be sensitized to. So teasing out uh, which particular ones someone might be uh, sensitized to, have a, an a immune response to, is difficult. But the other part of it that's difficult is how do I test that and how do I create um, the products that they do, the skin prick testing, mm-hmm. uh, so, in a way that I can um, test for those cross-reactivities. So if I test for this one type of mold that, and you're allergic to it, it might tell me that you're also allergic to, uh, based on taxonomy, to other certain molds. Okay. But we don't have the extra extracts for those other certain molds. Gotcha. So I have to use my skin prick test of you for this particular species and protein because that sort of serves as a proxy indicator of these others. Again, I'm not a doctor, and that might not be, you know, well, the best But let's take it just a step further. I mean, I think we realize you're not a doctor, and we're not making giving medical advice, but um, taking to the next step, does that also affect the type of, you know, when they give you a little bit of something that you're allergic to to try and build up your you know, immunity, immunity right. to it, I would imagine this whole changing of the taxonomy may affect how they produce those products as well. That's right. It could potentially change that mixture that they use for immunotherapy. Okay. That's, what that's called, immunotherapy. Um, but the other thing that came out of 
this evaluation is that some of these extracts they use for the um, skin prick testing, uh, the quality control isn't as good as uh, one might have expected. Okay. And there's a, a quite a bit of difference between the extracts in the, used and developed for uh, North America versus Europe. Uh -huh. So they have different methodologies for developing those extracts. So, so you, we might test you with an extract from Europe and test you with an extract from North America, and there's a potential, I, I, I certainly would talk to uh, other experts about that, but there's a potential that you wouldn't have the same kind of response. So. Hmm. That was, uh, Sounds like it's a little more complicated of. being an allergy doctor than, oh, yeah, than you know, when you first look at it and go, well, they give you a little bit of this and, you know, you build up an immunity yeah. to it. Well, yeah, no, it's absolutely. a little it's, more complicated. Yeah. So what other... Uh, well, so the, the key, the thing we presented here uh, was on one of these documents that was very important to this community because the document was called Healthy Home Assessments and Remediation. And it was specifically... Uh, a, a review document for clinicians about what to expect from a indoor environmental professional when they are performing an assessment and characterization of exposure risks in a home or building. Uh, so it's specifically to try to um, give them guidance for what they should both look for in a professional who's doing this kind of work, what they should look for in the process they use in assessing and characterizing uh, potential exposures, and what to expect in uh, the communication about uh, their assessment. So what, what kind of report should they should expect? What should the components of that report be? Because what we're trying to do is get the physicians who the science including these mold publications and these other parameters, the, the science clearly indicates that uh, exposure, especially uh, if you are allergic, uh, uh, occurs in the environment. And if we can reduce exposure, if we can do things to eliminate or mitigate the proliferation of these allergens uh, in indoor environments, reduce exposure, people don't react. If you don't have the allergen in a home, then you're, you're not going to be having symptoms. So you end up re ideally reducing um, any kind of um, um, urgent care visits, any kind of potential asthma flare-ups if you have asthma and you also have certain allergies. Hmm. Um, and then your overall cost of medicines. People take medicines just to be able to you know, maintain yeah. their normal quality of life, yeah. uh, but they may not need those if they're not being exposed to these things, especially chronically. So the goal here would be um, to get those physicians to look for environmental professionals who can um, assess and characterize what's going on in their patients' houses and make recommendations and we discussed uh, to some degree in the uh, in these papers about what interventions uh, are known to work, what the, the the research evidence says, what interventions are known to work. So the intervention being some type of remediation, potentially, sure. Okay. Well, and the importance of uh, when it comes to uh, mold, of course, uh, the potential or the importance of. Uh, um, Assessing for dampness, chronic dampness, for okay. um, moisture intrusion, for moisture impacts, that, that, that really has to focus on understanding any kind of issues associated with chronic dampness. And the, so the focus is on stopping the moisture Fundamentally, problem. it should be. Okay. Um, did they have much 
information in there on the cleanup of the existing contamination after you fix the moisture problem? Not, uh, not a whole lot. The, the document isn't intended to provide a lot of detail on that, but it's, it's more about properly remediated conditions um, are associated with improvement in health outcomes. Is there a definition of properly remediated conditions? Uh, maybe not formally in the document, but maybe that you would well, even uh, the doc suggest? Well, well, the document, of course, is uh, uh, we're recommending they seek people with proper certification and training. So, um, and then a couple of guidance when it comes to uh, looking for that. So looking for people with certain credentials, asking about references, um, asking for sample work products, asking for a scope of work. Um, so, so giving them a guidance for what kind of things either they should ask for or that their patients should be asking of these people when they hire them because uh, you know, they really don't know uh, a whole lot. They don't get a whole lot of guidance anywhere other than from a few consumer agencies. There isn't a lot of guidance for how to find a good person to do uh, the kind of work you might need. Uh, now, some of the certifying credentialing bodies, they might offer some information about that. But, you know, finding that information, knowing what to look for, uh, oftentimes that's very difficult to find the information you want. So. Was the, the, is there any information on what guidelines and or standards they recommend these folks follow, or is it left to the fact that you know, they're certified through these organizations, which would imply at least that they know those standards and guidelines? Uh, I think it's more along the lines of, of what you say, that it, based on them having uh, certain types of credentials and the ability to uh, uh, show that they have work experience and uh, show sample products that uh, you at least have a higher level of confidence that they have some experience in being able to manage these kind of uh, concerns. But uh, really the intent is to tell physicians uh, or give physicians a framework for um, how they can A, identify these people and B, what their expectations should be. And the, part of the reason for this is, having worked with a lot of uh, clinicians, they very often get reports from people who uh, supposedly have done some of this work, and the report is of no real value. It is so poor quality, and it might only be two pages long, and it might only have a result of some sample that might have been collected. A it's, lab report or something right, like so that. Right, so it's not really giving you any sense of what the conditions are that this person might be living in. Uh, there's no photos to support um, what, what the conditions might actually be, that, a, that with some help a physician could understand mm -hmm. uh, what kind of condition this person is exposed to. So we really uh, try to guide them to not just look for this information, but really to expect that if not demand it, that they really should uh, require this of the um, environmental professionals they work with. What, uh, is there a list of certifications or is there, do you have uh, in any? In one of the parameters, uh, we provided a guidance on uh, identifying uh, consultants and we gave a list of some of the, cer the typical certifications that they might look for that have uh, um, 
components for how that certification is uh, obtained, like years of experience, being able to prove uh, or document that you had worked on certain types of projects that are associated with the certification or credential, uh, the actual credential itself, and who is the uh, certifying body, and what is are they an ANSI accredited body, for example, of different kinds of ways to show that that certification actually uh, is well established and has uh, a certain rigor of science and um, um, general uh, best practices and ethical principles for how a certification should be administered. I would imagine groups like the American Industrial Hygiene Association certified industrial hygienists are on that list. Sure. Maybe some of the ACAC certifications. Exactly. Okay. Um, maybe is the National Environmental Health Association one on there? Or is uh, I believe so. I believe the Healthy Home Specialist credential home is specialist. on there, and, okay. and the Certified Indoor Environmentalist, Environmental Consultant uh, credentials. The certified Microbial Investigator, yes. Microbial Consultant, things like that. Uh, exactly. Do they go into any credentials for the remediation guys, or is it they just, don't? Okay. Uh, it's mostly this first step of identifying someone to help. Uh, assess and characterize potential environmental risks and exposures, and then if identified, um, I, I, I think it, there would be uh, hope that the physician could depend on the knowledge of the certified consultant or uh, practitioner as far as uh, how to obtain uh, someone to do uh, remediation work and then how to verify that the work's been done appropriately. I see. Okay. Any other key points you'd like to make before we go that, uh, you know, listeners might be interested in, and whether it's on that presentation or something else you picked up here this week? Um, if people were interested, some of the information that was presented in this session that we offered with uh, Dr. David Miller about some of the history and some of the new science, um, that in particular I, I think would be well worth uh, those who are in this field to have uh, – uh, take a look at that, and uh, he, he presented some new and pretty, well, maybe not new, but a, a nice uh, summary of the history of allergens and what we n know about them and how it's affected the human population, a lot more about uh, our understanding of the genetic components of that and the molecular uh, inflammatory responses and what we now know about those. He really went into some of that uh, science, and it was very fascinating. I would encourage listeners to go back to the show we did with Dr. Miller not long ago. It was about three or four months ago, and those were the exact yeah, types of things I show. asked him to, uh, to yeah, discuss. Yeah, that was a great show. Well, thank you, Kevin Kennedy. As always, it's uh, great to see you, and I appreciate you joining us yeah. on IAQ Radio. And that's a wrap for today's show, but before we go, we've got one more little announcement to make. Coming to the Doubletree Hilton Hotel, Tampa Airport in sunny Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. It's the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum. Join industry leaders and educators as they share their knowledge in supporting science with you. Speakers include Pete Consigli, John Lapater, Dr. Ralph Moon, Harvey V. Cohen, Joe Hughes, Cliff Zlotnick, Ken Larson, and Eric Shapiro. See the latest equipment and solutions from exhibitors. Network with sponsors and industry insiders. It's two full days of in-depth coverage of water damage, assessment, protocols, mold remediation, problems, solutions, solutions, and legal issues. Don't miss this important two-day industry forum beginning Tuesday the 21st with a welcome reception and wrapping up with a live IAQ radio broadcast Friday the 24th featuring Radio Joe and the Z-Man and their guest John Lapater, Richard Alexis, and industry watchdog Pete Consigli. Register now at IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com. That's IndoorEnvironmentalScienceForum.com.
www.ghostbusters.com or call 954-562-6093 for more information. Register now for the second annual Indoor Environmental Science Forum in sunny and warm Tampa, Florida, February 21st through the 24th. And you Florida folks, don't forget you can get your Florida State continuing education credits at that particular conference. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, our engineer, John, you gotta have faith. But most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, um, always great to see everyone at the conferences and uh, good to see people back and in the saddle and listening again this week. We'll be back next Friday at noon for the next live broadcast of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reel saying thanks for listening. <laughs>